starting now. Okay. Hi, my name is Maria, and I am a recover compulsive overeater. Hi, Maria. And I'm happy to be here today to um, hopefully uh, do the best that I can with breaking down the mechanics of step four and step five. Um, I don't know about you, but I had a lot of uh, my myths and um, some fears about step four until they actually became not theory and not an idea, but an actual experience that I had. And then um, once I had the experience, I could actually see that this was a lifetime skill that I would use on a daily basis. It wasn't something that I was gonna do once a year or you know, once in the beginning of my recovery and then never see again. But it's actually something that becomes a living, breathing part of me every, every day. Um, I'm looking for certain things that block me off. And that's, that's a theory in AA, in the big book, NOA, um, through the steps until it becomes an actuality. You know, so it was always a theory to me until I put it to work and then it became reality. And I was like, wow, okay, this stuff really does work. So, do you want to introduce? Hi, my name is Kim um, and I am a recovered compulsive overeater. And um, actually, I'm just going to do a two minute introduction because this is, this is four and five. There's a lot of stuff that was came before page 64. So if anyone wants to take out their, um, their uh, table of contents. Let's look at what has gotten us to launch onto this program of action. So we start out with the doctor's opinion, which tells us who and what we are. Um, because if I, if I don't know who and what, I'm my, what I am, who the heck cares about the rest of the book? So we are told in the doctor's opinion that we have a twofold illness. So we have this allergy of the body, um, which means that when I ingest certain foods, not all foods, but certain foods, certain ingredients, and engage in certain behaviors, what happens is I get a phenomenon of craving. I get this by a physiological change in my body that demands that I have more and more and more. And there's nothing I can do about that. That is physiological. I could, and the way I like to say it is I cannot reasonably predict how much I'm going to have once I ingest these certain substances. But the more dastardly part is I have this mental twist that when I'm not eating, which is my real problem, I get restless, I get irritable, I get discontent, I get so uncomfortable in my own skin, and I need relief, I need an effect. And up to this point, the only way I can get that effect to get relief is through picking up the food. And once we know that diagnosis, we get into Bill's story, because now that we know the diagnosis, what does that look like in a human being? So in Bill's story, we're introduced to Bill Wilson, who has this disease, and what it looks like when it developed through him. So the way that I have approached it is I look at it. I mean, you know, do I eat like Bill drank? Do I think like Bill thinks? And do I feel like Bill felt? Do I see the progression that Bill is experiencing where it goes from fun and excitement to necessity to oblivion? And then once I identify him with that, I'm led into the chapter there as a solution, which I'm also taught about maybe I'm not a real compulsive overeater. We're talk they talk about the moderator, the person who can take it or leave it alone the heavy eater, someone who might eat with us, maybe one of our binge buddies, but given sufficient reason, a diagnosis of diabetes, um, you know, a threat of, of divorce, they're able to stop eating without a spiritual solution. But if I'm the real compulsive overeater, what I find out in that chapter is I have no choice in whether I'm going to eat or not, that I have no willpower when it comes to my food, and that I have no memory. I, there's no consequence that I'm going to remember that's going to allow me not to take that first bite. And then in more about alcoholism, I'm taught about, which I would like to rename the chapter personally, why I come to Overeaters Anonymous, because that mental twist is the reason I need to step. 
Why, when I'm sober, when I'm not having that biological reaction, do I choose to eat again? And we're going to meet gentlemen. Good day, bad day, we're going to eat. Step one does not say don't eat. Step one says I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat, I'm going to eat, that I am powerless. And that leads us into we agnostics, which tells us that we need a power. We're going to confront our prejudices about religion, about spirituality, about Overeaters Anonymous, about the 12 steps, and then we'll come to that conclusion that I need a power. And then in step three, I'm being confronted with what is life like when Kim's in charge? You know, that I'm selfish and self-centered to the core, that I'm driven by a hundred forms of fear, that I'm the victim of the delusion I cannot wrest satisfaction and happiness out of the world. Can we imagine a little bit better? And when I come to that conclusion that I, as a manager, need to be fired, I am suddenly in a place where I'm going to launch to find a different way of living. And that different way of living is four through nine. So we're going to be learning today the first part of that inventory process, which is steps four and five. Beautiful um, breakdown of one, two, and three. If I turn to page 60 in Alcoholics Anonymous, the big book, um, Bill also breaks this down very simply, and, I, and it's called the ABCs, right? And I have, to, I have to be convinced of some certain things. What am I trying to be convinced of? And I think that's a, a sponsor's role, is to help us become convinced. Not that we're trying to convince you, but we're trying to give you, arm you with some facts about yourself so that you can be convinced on your own. Okay, so did I eat like that, like Bill drank? Did I feel like Bill felt, right? And we're, and we're constantly questioning, is this me? Is this actually me? Can I, can I identify with this? So by the time we get to page 60, that's a lot, that's most of the, the beginning of, of our working pages, right? So we've got to understand and have a really good foundation of those facts about ourselves, physically and mentally. So um, A, it says, our description of the alcoholic, the chapters to the agnostic, and personal adventures before and after make clear three pertinent ideas. So are these pertinent ideas clear to me? Do I believe that I am a compulsive eater and cannot manage my own life in the food or out of the food, drunk or sober? Right? I always knew that while I was drunk or in food, food fog, I could not manage my life. But what about when I'm sober? I think I can relate to that too. That's step one. And then it goes on to B. Do I believe that probably no human power could have relieved my compulsive eating? No diet, no sponsor, no meeting. And that was my experience. Every time I tried something of human aid, it failed me, which was good news because I, it taught me how to reach for something that was bigger than human aid. That's the first part of step two. And do I believe that God can and will if I seek him? That means my new job now is to become a seeker, right? It just doesn't come over me like, you know, a magic wand, like, poof, here you go. I need to become a seeker. What am I seeking out? At this point in, in the game, Bill tries to tell me that I ha there are some requirements that have to be made. And I have to be convinced that any life run on self-will can hardly be a success, right? What does that look like? Well, in step four, I start seeing life run on self-will, life run on resentments, life run on fear, life run on my harms done to other people in relationships. And this is good news because the theory in this book is that God or a power greater than me resides within me. But it's bl I'm blocked from it. It's obscured. What am I blocked by? I'm blocked by some fixed thinking, some handicaps, uh, I'm, I'm belligerent, right? 
and I just can't see myself for the reality of who I am. I'm very delusional in my thinking. So at step, at step three, Bill is saying, you know, um, are you ready to turn your thinking and your actions over to something bigger? And at this point in the game, I don't truly understand or experience step three. All I know is that I'm ready to move on. I've been told I am suffering from a, a possible mental obsession that can get me at any time, and I've had that experience, right? I'm, I'm abstinent. I'm doing good. I'm doing good. Why did I just pick that up like Tim explained earlier? So that is the greater aspect of my disease. So I, that's what I'm up against. So I was told, work your steps quickly. Get into what is blocking you so that the power can actually come in and through. In and through. That's what I'm looking for. What am I blocked by? This, uh, this theory is that I'm blocked by a couple different things. And it's, it's a beautiful, uh, simple way of unblocking because really everything boils down to the evil and corroding threat of fear. And we all as human beings experience that. But also where that leads me is I like to spend a lot of time blaming everybody else for everything that's ever happened to me. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. Mm -hmm. So I've got lots of resentments, re-feelings, feelings that I like to revisit. And every time I revisit them, they like to grow and change and get bigger. And I start this narrative that is possibly delusional. It might not be true. I like to tell myself things that are not true sometimes. So these are the things that are blocking me, right? I'm not dealing in reality. I am full of fear. And because of that, I'm harming my fellows around me. And I don't even think I am. I think it's everybody else. So um, I'm going to start off on page um, 63. It tells me that I have to launch out. Once I, de once I decide that, uh, OK, I'm ready to move on with this program, I'm ready to learn a new skill set of thinking. It tells me I need a psychic change, right? How am I going to get a psychic change? That's a, a psychic change is a new way of thinking, a revolutionary way of thinking. I don't know how to think any other way than I've been thinking all my life. So this is the step that's going to start teaching me how to think in a different way. It's very, very practical. And it tells me that it's a course of vigorous action. Now, the course of vigorous action, in, in my knowledge, is four through nine that if I just do a solid step four and I don't give it away to someone, I don't find out what my character defects are, I don't ask a power greater than me to help me with those character defects, and I don't clean up the wreckage of my past, what good is doing all this house cleaning? What good is it? I've just kind of moved everything from the corners of my house into the center of the room and made it disheveled, but I haven't cleaned and have not put anything back in, in the proper place. So it tells me that uh, I have to launch out on this course of vigorous action. So being launched, I've never seen a slow launch, right? <laughs> this is POW. I need to do this quickly, right, and thoroughly. So the first step is a personal house cleaning, which is step four, and that's what we're going to talk about today. It says, though our decision was vital and crucial, it can have little permanent effect at unless at once followed by a strenuous effort to face and be rid of the things in ourselves which had been blocking us. There's that theory that I am blocked, that I have to become unblocked. 
So what is blocking me, right? I've got to get down to the causes and the conditions that make me want to eat. What are those things? Very practical. It's a fact-finding and fact-facing process. Fact-finding means searching. Fact-facing means fearless. So I cannot walk around with this baggage anymore of the stuff, the chatter that's going on in my head about how, you know, somebody done me wrong, you know, uh, and all those things that I tell myself that keep me in fear, I'm not good enough, right? She's not gonna like me, right, whatever. My prestige thinking. So I've gotta get down to the searching and fearless moral inventory, and moral means truth. It's time to stop bullshitting myself. I've got to get down to the truth of the stock and trade of who Maria is. Where are my failings? Why can't I function in life? Why am I having problems with personal relationships? Why can't I just do life? And you know, some of this, I said to you earlier that this is a day-to-day -day process that I learned because as a sober woman, as an abstinent woman for, a, you know, five and a half years now, I still get blocked. And this is the step that's going to unblock me. It's going to get me to see myself for who I really am, what the situation is calling for. Truth. I'm always looking, God, please show me the truth about this. So it tells me um, that resentment is the number one offender. Resentments are going to kill the alcoholic or the compulsive overeater more than anything else. That's very strong wording. Um, I, I kind of like to skip around a little bit. Mm -hmm. um, when we're talking about resentments, I like to go to page 66. And it's going to tell me why resentments are so dangerous. It says, it is plain, obvious, that a life which includes deep resentment leads to futility and unhappiness. Futility. I'm spinning my wheels and I'm not going anywhere. I'm unhappy. I just can't get anything right. Right? Uh, even if I get it, the shine wears off real quick for me. So to the precise extent that I permit these resentments, do we squander the hours that might have been worthwhile? With the alcoholic, whose hope is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience, this business of resentment is infinitely grave. So it's telling me that my job here is a spiritual experience, a psychic change. It's not abstinence. I think abstinence, per, for me, was my ticket in the door to the steps. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't the goal. I, got, I need to get abstinent, I need to get abstinent. I can't get abstinent unless I get spiritual. So Bill's reminding us that my hope here is the maintenance and growth of a spiritual experience. And the business of resentment is infinitely grave. We found that it is fatal. For when harboring such feelings, we shut ourselves off. That's another word for block, right? Obscure from the sunlight of the spirit. The insanity of alcohol returns, meaning the thought of the first bite not the fifth, you know, it's not the half a cake I ate, it was that first lick that, I, that set me off, physical craving, right? That's insanity. And we drink again or eat again, and with us, to, to drink is to die. And I'm going to die off spiritually and emotionally and physically, you know, it's a very slow, painful uh, thing that's going here. It says, if I am to live, I have to be free of anger. The, gra the grouch and the brainstorm are not for us. They may be the dubious luxury of normal men. But for alcoholics, these things are poison. Poison. So anytime I'm irritated, I'm resentful, I'm telling myself a story over and over again about that thing that happened, right? I love to go here. 
because I need to be reminded that I need to stay away from anger like the plague, right? Like the plague. And the thing is, I'm a human being. I'm going to get angry. I can't not get angry. It's a natural emotion. But to sink my teeth into it, to sit there, unpack my bags, and live in it for a while, that's where it becomes dangerous. So the big book gives me a, real, a really great way out of anger. Okay? Um, the first thing I'm going to do, the, the, in the directions are right here on page 64. I'm going to list people, institutions, and principles with whom I am angry. That's pretty simple because I can tell you <laughs> all day long who is aggravating me, right? I mean, sometimes I have worked with people and sometimes women have a hard time with anger. They don't feel the anger, you know? Um, they don't allow themselves the anger. But there's a couple other um, things, words here that I like to visit. And in this book on 65, it asked me, who hurt me? I can, I can come up with some names of people that have hurt me. Maybe I'm not angry with them, but they hurt me. Who threatened me? Who threatens what I want out of life that I'm after? Burned up. Who's burning me up? What's burning me up? Is it the government? Is it, you know, it's everything. It's people, places, and institutions, uh, and principles. And then the other one is interfering with me. Who's interfering with me? So if you can't get to anger, I like using these other four words because they, they really do tap into a real thorough house cleaning. These are the things that make me re-feel something. So um, we listed these people, institutions, or principles. And, you know, when we're talking about that, I can say the people it could be anybody. It could be family, relatives, friends, race, society, men, women, employees, per personnel, staff, police, lawyers, creditors, teachers. It can go into institutions like uh, rehabs, organizations, fellowships, associations, OA, um, government, and principles would be ethics, morals, codes of conduct, you know, things that uh, maybe I don't like that that's some unwritten law somewhere, you know, and I resent it. So I get these things on paper, and then I ask myself why I am angry. And this, uh, this, this is easy. I know why I'm angry. <laughs> the, prob the, the hard part is to keep it short and sweet. You know, uh, sometimes people need to write about something for uh, a couple paragraphs or a couple pages, but in a, in a written inventory, the way it's outlined here, it's really just three sentences. Three sentences can encompass everything for me. I don't have to get into a um, you know, dissertation about my husband and he does this and he does that and then all of it basically would probably come down to a couple things, just a couple things. And they're in bullet point form. I don't have to even write full sentences. I am after a much bigger chunk of information. And what I'm after comes in step three. Step three is enlightening for me. It was, um, it was something that I saw for the first time in my life, how uh, on my grudge list, opposite each name are injuries, right? This is how somebody hurt me. I am now looking for how I have been affected, right? How I've been interfered with, how I'm hurt, how I'm threatened. And it usually looks like 
this song that I sing to myself <laughs> that goes on and on and on, right? It's how my self-esteem has been affected, right? This is, uh, you know, oh, I'm so, and I give myself a label about how I am not looking the way I want to look in the world. Or maybe I am blown out of proportion on self-esteem and people aren't treating me like I think they should treat me because look who I am, <laughs> right? Doesn't he know that I am? Doesn't he know that I deserve lots of fixed thinking? And in step two, that's what we're looking for. We're looking for all the fixed thinking, right? Um, that's threatening me. Now I'm threatened because somebody's going against my beliefs, my ideas about myself, and I'm getting threatened. I'm getting burned up. I'm getting hurt. I'm being interfered with. So we look for self-esteem. We look for pride, right? Pride, the leader of the pack of character defects, right? This is, uh, you know, my idea of how uh, other people should be acting in accordance to my narrative, my ambitions. This is what I want in life. My security. This is what I need. What I think I need in life. Um, my personal relationships. What a real husband looks like. What a real brother looks like. What a re and I've got lots of fixed thinking there, and I find them out by finishing these sentences. Like, what are, what are my fixed thoughts about these people? You know, real moms do this. You know, real moms do that. And when somebody's not acting to my narrative, I get threatened. <coughs> my sex relationships, right? That's easy. That's my relationships with not just who I'm in bed with, but the opposite sex. You know, or the same, like real women. How my fixed thoughts about how real women act or how real men act. Boy, did that come up for me over and over and over again. You know, these were my resentments are alive and kicking when I have ideas about how real men should be a certain way. And, and you know, my sponsor was really blunt with me. He's like, great, you know? You have all these great ideas about how real men are, and when they don't act like that, you're gonna be in collision with the world around you over and over again. Whose problem is it? It's my problem my problem. I need to come up with some, some different ways of thinking. So, uh, and of course pocketbook because finances are important and they are threatened a lot in my life. Money, property, and prestige are, are some of, of my drivers. They drive me and they get me in trouble because I have fixed thinking about that too. <laughs> so uh, what am I looking for? I'm looking for this narrative, this, this thought, these th th thoughts that are just keeping me in resentment. And uh, we went back through our lives, nothing counted but thoroughness and honesty, and we were finished, we considered it carefully. I need help considering this in my fifth step. You know, I have seen some things, but in my fifth step, that woman who is the, uh, the compassionate mirror is there to show me myself with love. Not to beat myself up, but to see, no wonder you're having problems. No wonder you're in collision with everyone. No wonder you can't just do life. <laughs> Look at all of this. This this has to be, we have to get rid of this. It needs to be changed. I need a psychic, psychic change, right? So what we have is um, a trick. The big book plays a trick on us. It's the best trick ever, the best. Because once I see all these, these fixed thoughts, I have to look at this and I've got to start looking at myself now. Do you want me to do it? You're going to do four? Mm -hmm. Okay. So I turn back to the list. I'm on page 66. I, I can do that too. 
Oh, okay. Kim's going to do that part. Okay. So um, I have, what do I have? I've got a column one, I've got a column two, and I have a column three. What am I going to do with it? Because I can live here. I can live here, but this is not good enough for me. I need to turn this around. I need to start looking at it in a totally, entirely different way. My sponsor would say, are you ready to look at this from an entirely different angle? Right from the book. Yes, I am. Why? Because it is plain that a life filled with resentment is going to be, lead me to futility and unhappiness, and it's going to kill me. So yes, as much as I don't want to see it from an entirely different way sometimes, I have to. It's my job. I have to. Because over and over and over again, it's been proven to me that I'm in wrong thinking. I've been in wrong thinking. Is it possible I can be in wrong thinking again? And that's going to be where Kim takes over. Thank you. Oh, <laughs> yes. I love this stuff. Okay, so we've done these first three columns. If you look at the bottom of 65, it says, the last line, the first thing apparent was that the world and its people were often quite wrong. To conclude that others were wrong was as far as most of us ever got. So if we stay in these first three columns, nothing's going to change. So I always like to talk about kind of my prejudices, you know. Um, I did a lot of fourth steps. I mean, I actually go back. There's a line on page 25 which really hit me. And, it's, and there's a solution where it says that we've had deep and effective spiritual experiences. And I had to admit, I'm someone that's been in OA since 1994. I've been recovered now for seven and a half years. But those first 17 years, I was in and out of relapse. Why? I had to say, I had some deep spiritual experiences. Coming in and finding out I had a disease was a deep spiritual experience. Finding people who understood me was a deep spiritual experience. But I was in the middle of a five-year relapse. I had to admit what I was doing wasn't effective. It wasn't effective. So I had to look at what was the step work that I was doing prior that wasn't working. And for me personally, I'm just talking about my own experience, is most of my four steps kept me in those first three columns. They were diaries. They were autobiographies. I was going to prove to you my main object, talks about here one object, my main object was to make my sponsor hate these people as much as I did. You know, that I was going to prove that I was right. You know, so that's why I love the way Maria, it's a very simple process. It's, it's simply four columns. We don't work from the first column to the fourth column because if we get involved in the story, we're going to get emotional. This is supposed to be fact-finding and fact-facing. We do that first column, we take a break. We do that second column, we take a break. We do that third column, we take a break. So what is the object? It's to get rid of them promptly without regret. What did I do? I stayed in the fourth step for like three years while I was eating. Number one, that's not promptly, and I didn't regret anything. I thought to myself, I, I reinforced my resentments, I reinforced my fears, I reinforced my sex conducts and harms, because I was so ginned up. How can, I, how can I stay abstinent staying in that type of environment? So I had to get rid of them promptly without a regret, and, and this word thorough threw me. Because if Maria had a three-subject notebook filled <laughs> with her fourth step, and I had a five-subject notebook filled with my fourth step, I won. <laughs> this is simply a series of, of lists, and that's why I love how Maria, it's bullet points. It's bullet points. So if, I, if you really want to see a three-column inventory, I can hand you any of the diaries that I had growing up. Because I would write in my diary every time, who ticked me off, why they ticked me off, and how I'm a victim. And they're letting us know here that's infinitely grave, it's poison, and I'm going to die. And what I really saw was, how in the heck am I going to live in 2018 if I'm still being controlled by, by 1985? I mean, Duran Duran is gone, people. <laughs> so should those people be from when I was from high school. But I was, I was living in, 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 a, 
in a way. <laughs> and that's when it became plain that most of my most of my inventory was 20 years old, 30 years old. So I that paragraph um, that Maria started to do, I'm like, no, I want to do that. So it's the last full paragraph on page 66. We turn back to the left for the key. It was the key to the future. We prepared to look at it from an entirely different angle. I always heard I had to look for my part. See, because if I have a part, you have a part. And I'm going to blame you. The big book doesn't say that. I'm going to look at it from an entirely different angle. So how is that done? I, the greatest analogy I heard was, let's think of this as a court case. Okay? In those first three columns, I'm the prosecuting attorney. I'm going to say who's guilty, what they did, and how they affected society. And as we're changing from the third column to the fourth column, I'm now going to become the defense attorney. And I'm going to look at it from an entirely different angle. So it says here, we began to see the world and its people really dominated us. My God, every, my current boyfriend is, is paying for what my high school boyfriend did to me. I always use this silly example, but I had really, really bad teeth as a kid. I, I had a, it's actually considered a birth defect. When my baby teeth came out, I was getting two and three teeth for every tooth that came out. I was like a shark. I had layers of teeth, and I, my overbite was so bad that I couldn't keep my mouth shut, and my front teeth were becoming loose. So I was put in braces when I was 10 years old. I had eight teeth taken out just to get me in braces. And then I wore braces till I, till I graduated um, right before my senior year. So I wore them for seven years. I was teased. I was called Bugs Bunny and Hungry Hungry Hippo and all this stuff. I'm in college, my sophomore year in college, and I was voted Best Smile. And I cried because I knew they were making fun of me. Mm -hmm. I knew they were making fun of me because I could not let go of what kids were saying when I was 10. I was 20 years old, but those kids who were 10 years old had as much power over me as they did when I was 10 years old. And I started to see that in my inventory. I don't want these people to dominate me anymore. You know, I hear I see it all the time. Well, my mother, well, how old are you? I'm 70. You, what, what your mother did when you were a kid, do you want that? I'm not even saying that the, 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 the um, trauma wasn't there and it wasn't real, but are you willing to let that trauma rule your life as an adult? And I started to realize I didn't want that to happen. In that state, the wrongdoing of others, fancied or real, had the power to kill. How could we escape? So the, the example I always use with that is, is my mom's in OA, so I get to talk to her um, on a step level. So one of the defining moments in my childhood is I come from a large Irish Catholic family and I would go to my grandmother's house with all my cousins and I was the oldest in my family but the youngest of my cousins and I would try to be a good little girl and stay quiet and invariably my mom would come over and say that's it we're out of here and she would drag me and my brothers out and I couldn't figure out what I did wrong mm -hmm. so I would go the next time and I'd be trying to be more quiet and more in the corner and she would still come over and say that to us that's it we're out of here and I have to tell you I still do that today I come into a large group and I want to stay in the corner and be quiet and not be noticed. So I said to my mother, do you know what that was about? She's like, I don't know, Kim, let me think about it. And she came back to me a couple of these days later and she goes, Kim, I think I know what it is. Now my grandfather was an active alcoholic until the day he died, never, never tried AA or anything. And my mom knew the beer that would put him over the edge and she didn't want her kids exposed to her father that way. And when she saw him have that beer, she would come over to us kids and say, that's it, we're out of here and suddenly I realized all those funny stories about my grandfather like you know passing out and walking down in his underwear I didn't know what my cousins were talking about because my mom didn't want me to see it now the funny thing is too I asked my brother who's a year and a half younger than me about this incident he doesn't even remember it so not only was it fancy that this little kid was, was, was seeing it this way 
but it's me with the alcoholic brain because my brother doesn't even, it's not even on his radar. So I just want to say that because it doesn't matter how small it is or how big it is. If it's taking up rent in your head, put it down. That's the way I think about it. What is blocking us? What's taking up rent in our head? Now let's say you were teased in third or fourth grade and you haven't thought about it since fifth grade. There's no reason to put it down. It's not blocking you. So that's what we're looking for, those things, fancied or real. We saw these resentments had to be mastered, but how? We could not wish them away any more than alcohol. So here comes what we've known as the sick man's prayer. This was our course. We realized that the people who wronged us were perhaps spiritually sick. And I had to look at myself. When I was feeling good about myself, was I being nasty? No. It was when I was hurting. It was when I was scared and frightened that I would lash out other people. Why can't I think it's the same way for others? Perhaps they're spiritually sick. Though we did not like their symptoms, which is column two, and the way they disturbed us, which is column three, they, like ourselves, were sick too. I gotta see that, that I am one of the human race, like, like ourselves. We asked God to help us show the same tolerance, pity, and patience that we would cheerfully grant a sick, sick friend. So this is how I personalized it for me. My youngest brother is learning disabled. He's 46 years old, but emotionally about 12 or 13, he reads at like a second or third grade level. And we'll go to a restaurant, and he has a hard time with the menus. And the waiters and the waitresses get really snippy with him. But I can see the minute that they realize he's not being a jerk, he's just having a hard time with the menu. And he, they are so wonderful and so kind to him. And I thought to myself, what if I can treat the world the way I wish my, the world treated my brother? What if I assumed everyone had a disability that I couldn't see? And that has changed my world. Because I don't know what's going on in other people's lives. So I'm going to treat everyone with the same patience, tolerance, kindness, and love that I would treat my brother or a friend who has cancer or a friend who, ha- who, who lost a family member and assume that they're hurting. It says, when a person offended, we said to ourselves, and it doesn't say if, it says when. This is a sick man. How can I be helpful? God save me from being angry. And what I really saw, and honestly, I don't say this sick man's prayer in its entirety all the time. I always am saying, God save me from being angry. God save me from being angry. Because what I started to realize through this process was my pain wasn't as much as what people were doing, but my reaction to it. And if God could save me from being angry, then people can be the jerks that they want to be. I don't have to be a victim of what is going on in the world. I can be free regardless of how other people act. To avoid retaliation or argument. So let's go down to that fourth column. It says, referring to our list again, putting out of our minds the wrongs others have done, we have resolutely looked for our own mistakes. Where had we been selfish, dishonest, self-seeking, and frightened? <coughs> so an interesting way I heard this recently on a podcast was my fourth column. Let's see, I'm doing my fourth column with my mother. What if my mother was doing her inventory on me? My fourth column is her second column. This is how I rub up against people. So the big book doesn't differentiate between selfish and self-seeking, but this is the way that I look at it. Selfish is, I'm a two-year-old kid, I have a toy, and no one's gonna get it. It's mine, 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 mine. Self-seeking is, I'm a two-year-old kid and my friend has a toy, and I'm gonna do whatever I can to get that toy away from him. So selfish is what I do internally, and self-seeking is what I try to get from the outside world. 
And then dishonesty, I had a hard time with that. I'm a Catholic school kid, and I am cash register honest. I have total fear, but I am cash register honest. And a, a big book teacher gave me some different definitions of dishonesty that really helped me specifically in my 10 steps. Is dishonesty is not seeing the world for the way it is, but the way I wish it should be. So for example, with my mother, what was a lot of my resentments? I wish she was Carol Brady. Like I wanted her to be a sitcom mom. And she was Joan Grace. So I'm not seeing the world. I'm in a, in a situation right now at work where there's a good chance I might get laid off. So my resentment is going to be to say, I, I don't want to be in that position. I want to know that my job is secure. I want to know that I can retire from there in 20 years. That's not reality. So my anger and my resentment comes that I'm not willing to look at the world the way it is. And the second one is for not telling the truth when the truth needs to be told. See, I have this awful idea that people should read my mind and they should be able to do what I think, not do what I say. So where am I being dishonest? A lot of time my 10 steps is I look at it as a dishonesty and I might have to speak up and say something. I might have to tell my boss about the fact that maybe I'm not willing to stay late this, this day because my fear of getting laid off wants me to say yes to everything. And I might have to say that. So those are the two, two definitions of dishonesty which really help me a lot. And then fear is fear. That's primal. So what I want to do is give an example of one of my resentments of how I can go from living in those first three columns, which is, once again, my diary when I was in fifth grade, to the fourth column, which is where I can find freedom, because I don't want these people dominating me anymore. So one of my resentments was I, I was a freshman in college, and I was sitting in my dorm room in February, and my roommate threw up in the door and started to beat me up. And the guy across the hallway had to pull her off of me. The campus police had to be called. And I, she was removed from the room. And I had a, a single the rest of the semester. So Lori beat me up. And that was my script for like 20-something years. But now I'm supposed to look at it from an entirely different angle. And I have to tell you, when I went to college, I, I, I felt like I'm putting down Catholic schools, but I was the epitome of what Catholic schools should do to you. I had never had a drink. I had never smoked a cigarette. I had never even kissed a boy. And on top of that, I'm, I'm obese. And in walks this girl we're randomly assigned, and she is gorgeous, absolutely gorgeous, tall and blonde, and the boys loved her. Self-seeking, I thought I could be popular through her. I wanted to live through her and her popularity. Now, this girl was not a nice girl. She was nasty. But self-seeking, I wanted to, you know, I wanted to, uh, to live through her. Well, she had this official boyfriend, and she cheated on him all the time, and I'm her friend, so I kept all her secrets, but I was her alibi. Well, February is, is Valentine's Day, and she decided she told her boyfriend that she wasn't going to come home um, for the weekend with him because she had some family obligations. But really what happened was a guy like 15 years older than us offered to take her to the Bahamas for the weekend. So a beautiful girl, not too smart, coming home in February with a tan and thinking nobody would ask questions. <laughs> and she comes, so Ed comes to me and says, Kim, what happened? And I told him everything. I told him all her secrets. Now, self-seeking again, dishonesty, I kind of had a crush on Ed. Maybe if I trash Lori enough, he'll ask me out. So this girl comes home from class. To me, you see her boyfriend, he breaks up with her and tells her how her friend, which is what I was to her, I was her friend, I betrayed all her confidences. So she came down and tried to beat me up. Who wouldn't? And here I am, and how can she even defend herself? Well, you don't understand. She told my boyfriend I was a slut. Like the poor girl had no defense. 
So suddenly, after 20 years of one story, I'm like, holy God, I have to find this girl and apologize to her. How, what an awful friend I was. Because I was able to get to that fourth column and look at it from an entirely different angle. So do you want to say anything before we close up the resentments, or? Sure. <coughs> so in, in that sick man prayer, one of the things that really helps me is when someone is agitating me, when I'm agitated by somebody, the question that I like to ask is, have I done the exact same thing that this person is mm -hmm. doing right now? And nine times out of 10, I can say, yes, I have. And there's something about needing mercy that allows me to give mercy. Um, there's something, I just had uh, an experience a few months ago that was profound. I was, um, I hate gossip, and I, and I take it with pride that I don't gossip, right? Um, interesting, <laughs> because I find myself uh, in a situation where I got real excited and I saw a friend of mine and, and, and I, was, I found myself gossiping. It was, it was kind of in the guise of a 10 step. I wanted to share with her, but really it was gossip. And I saw myself in all of that glory on the drive home and could not sit with myself. I called immediately asking him if I could speak to her and the next morning I made an amends. And um, you know, when somebody is gossiping to me, not so judgmental anymore. I've done it. I saw myself do it. After saying, I will never do it, right? I'm human. I knew that I was, I was affected in some way. I was overexcited. The book says stay away from excitement. Uh, I was hurting and I didn't clean up this stuff in real time and it bled over into this relationship. But there is something about having to, the need for mercy allows me to extend it to others. It's a humbling experience. It's a wonderful experience. It was a wonderful experience for me. She was gracious. She accepted my apology. Of course she did. She's in program too, you mm -hmm. know? But it was uh, eye-opening for me, right? I haven't needed mercy for a while. I think it's a nice thing to need mercy every once in a while. It's easier for me to give it back. And then, um, you know, a lot of people get, and I did, I got jammed up with this fourth column. I could not make the connection between where am I self-seeking, selfish, dishonest, and afraid. I couldn't get it. And I, I was taught, and this worked like a charm, I really believe in the science of cause and effect, right? And for me, cause is always going to be happening here first, my thinking. The effect is always going to be the, 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 the outcome of my thinking, right? I can't do something unless I think it first. So I really think that like, I'm always on guard of the thoughts, right? The thoughts are going to be the first, the precursor to all my actions. Mm -hmm. So in, in the book, it really made sense to me to do it this way. I know what my fears are. When I do my third column and I find out what my fixed thinking is, I ask myself, what am I afraid of? If I'm saying, you know, all men should be like this, and they're not like that, what fear does that instill in me? And I write it down. So I start out with fear. You know, I have certain fears. The fears, for me, drive dishonest thinking, delusional thinking, the world according to Maria. Men shouldn't do that, right? 
And when I am in this delusional thinking, I become selfish because I'm not getting what I want. What do I want? I want men to do like this, be treated like this, or treat me like this. And then the self-seeking becomes the action from the thought of selfish. So mm -hmm. I have a selfish thought, and the self-seeking then comes from it. Well, if I want him to treat me like this, then I better act like this. Or uh, maybe I can get him to do it this way if I just do this. That's my self-seeking. And that cause and effect really helped me. It really helped me see that the evil encroding thread is the cause. Some, some fear is driving me to have some delusional thinking that will trigger some selfishness because that's who I am. I'm selfish and self-centered to my core as an addict. And then I'm going to be driven to do something to get what I want or prevent something from happening. So that leads me right to fear. Okay, so we'll stop.